Salutations from space and aloha from Earth, friends. This is Gemini Brett of More Than Astrology with Storytelling Hour here on Lucid Vibe Radio. I'm pre-recording this episode on Monday, October 2nd at 1.11 p.m. The day of the moon, Monday, in the hour of Mercury. Last week I spoke about the moon game and the conjunctions every 29 and a half days of moon and sun or soul in spirit. If you didn't hear that live on Lucid Vibe, you can catch up with it at my storytelling podcast on SoundCloud. Today, I thought we could speak a bit about Mercury, Venus, and Mars, the other three of the five with Moon and Sun that we astrologers know as the personal planets. For they all have cycles too, from Earth's view, cycles with the Sun, and also cycles with each other. And this is a powerful week for all of these things, for Mars and Venus will meet in the morning sky on October 5th. It's kind of been a long time coming. They will do so in the sign of Virgo. And Mercury will align with Earth and Sun from the other side, behind the Sun, on October 5th. Eighth, in the sign of Libra. But we've already gotten too technical, haven't we? I thought maybe it would be more interesting to begin with a story, one that I learned from the beings of Mercury. Mercury spins very slowly. So slowly, in fact, that the beings who live there have a longer day than they do a year. And the result is that Mercury, it may be true to the traditional astrological associations between that planet and the sign of Gemini, is in many ways divided into two sides. One is incredibly hot. Besides the sun, almost the hottest place of our solar system. It's said that Venus is hotter because she has a lot of greenhouse gas while Mercury has no atmosphere at all. So one side is very, very hot and the other side is very, very, very cold, almost as cold as Saturn so far away. I wanted to speak with you about the mythical bird of Mercury, the Caduceus bird, and about the two peoples who are named for the Caduceus. Well, I guess we would call it a salamander, and the Cadu, which is something like a squirrel. Now, the Caduceus people they are what we might call 
hot, cold people. They live on this side of Mercury that is always spinning towards the sun. And so the general gig with the sea as people is that when it gets so hot, they have to pick up camp and walk away from the sun into the very cold places where they will set up again and enjoy their lives until the spin brings them back into these burning places. And then they pick up camp and walk away from the sun into the cold once again. This is much like the Seas salamander who thrives in the heat of the sunlight, but if it hangs there too long, it will get burned. In fact, this has happened also for plenty of the seaest people. You see, these strange dynamics of Mercury's spin in orbit bring the Mercurians on the seaest side a very strange opportunity, a rare opportunity to see the sun move retrograde. So a great challenge for the seaest people, usually only attempted by young folk, is to see the sun rise twice in one day, that it will rise over the atmosphere, set back into the same horizon, and rise once again. Now to see this, you might just get burned. Actually, it's most likely so. But strange techniques have been developed to make this happen. Nobody really believes the kids that come back to camp and say they saw it happen. I do. Anyway, within the seas people, the hot cold people, the people who have to pick up camp when their place gets too hot and retreat into the coldest places they can, there's many different levels. There's moderate folk and they're the faster folk. So the moderate folk, they will have this great exodus every time their side of the planet gets so hot as it spins towards the sun. And they will walk as far as they can into the deepest freezing cold that they can stand and set up camp. And that way they have a much longer time to enjoy their daily lives before it gets too hot again and they have to retreat. Other beings of the seas world They'd prefer to set camp and pick up sticks every morning and walk into moderate cold. So some do this in long periods, some in short. This is the way of all worlds. But this world, Mercury, has two sides. The hot, cold sea is people who have to retreat from the light. And the cold, hot, kadu people who have to move towards it. The Kadu folk take their name from this animal that we would call squirrel, who walks into the cold, but must retreat and find the heat once again before they freeze. And so it is with the Kadu people. For as this side of Mercury spins away from the light, it gets way too freezing cold. So they have to pick up and march into the heat as much as they can stand before 
setting camp once again. And of course, some take the long walk into the highest heat they can tolerate before setting camp to go into the places where they are almost frozen stiff before backing up and taking the long march once again. And others just do this daily thing, hanging out more in the temperate zones of this Kadu side of the mercurial world. It's rumored that some of the Kadu people have seen double sunsets, those unique opportunities when the sun for beings on Mercury goes retrograde. Most don't believe the kids who say they have seen this miracle. And on either side, few believe that there is a winged beast on Mercury. Earth scientists will say there's no atmosphere at all, but there is one, just very thin, one that is hard to beat a wing against. But it is rumored there are legends of a kadu, seas, bird. Now, as time went by during the development of Mercury and its two people, infrastructure was built. They were basically taking the same path around their planet. This was true for both the Kadu and the Seas people. So they decided to build these bunkers and homes that they could use every time they returned to this place of their world once a year, really once a day, but they're almost the same. And a very strange thing occurred on both sides of the planet, relatively at the same time. The Kadu people realized they weren't the only ones building. The Seas people realized the same thing. Now, at first, on both sides, there were many arguments amongst the tribes. Who has been building on my structure when I wasn't looking? Maybe the moderate people were building on the same structures started by the extreme people of the Kadu tribe. Maybe the same for the Seas. But it was soon realized in council that this could not be so for the innovations that were happening on the Kadu buildings could never have been conceived by Kadu consciousness. The same was seen to be the truth for the Seas peeps. You see, hot cold people and cold hot people have rather opposite consciousness. So the innovations that were made by the Kadu people were so exactly opposite those that the Seas would conceive. They began to realize that there was an entire another crew of people on the other side, and that as they worked together, they were creating creations that neither one of them could alone. They longed to communicate with one another. They began to understand that if one crew was 
cold hot, the other must be hot cold. And they realize they would probably never connect other than this way of strange remote time and building infrastructure together. So they also began to create a language. As you can imagine, hot cold people and cold hot people develop entirely opposite forms of communication. So the language that they found was very pictorial, petroglyph style. And one of the principal petroglyphs that was found to be true to both peoples was this image of the mythical Caduceus bird. That bird became much less mystical as their infrastructure projects brought them deeper and deeper into their world. It was seen by some of the Theus folk that if they dug deep into the below, they would have a better chance of surviving their attempts to see a double sunrise. The same could be said for the Kadu folk to see a double sunset at that rare time when on Mercury the sun stations retrograde. And so they began to dig and dig, and as they did, they realized for the first time just where it is that the Kadu squirrels on one side and the sea salamanders on the other go to survive deep down below. At one point, a young girl from the Kadu world and a young lad from the Sias side dug so deep that they met in the middle. The Kadu and the Sias tribes finally met and they developed an entire world within the worlds below of this incredibly interesting and magical world we call Mercury. And there they found nests and nests of the legendary Kadu Seas birds, the strange prodigy of the mating of Seas salamanders and Kadu squirrels. Of course, as the Kadu and Seas tribes came together, they too birthed youth who were known as Caduceus. Okay, that's some weird story, but Mercury is pretty weird. And to catch Mercury on the morning side, you gotta wake up before sunrise in the witching hour when strange tales are whispered through the veil. I heard this tale from the beings of Mercury 
on a strange morning day. And though I usually refer to Mercury as he, sometimes now I remember to call them they. This might be a good practice for all of the worlds that we observe. Hermes, Mercury, Hermes, is known astrologically to be quite hermaphroditic. Actually, this word hermaphrodite comes from hermaphrodite, a combination of Hermes, Mercury, and Venus, Aphrodite, who, it is said, once combined on a passionate night and that she later gave birth to the first hermaphrodite, hermaphrodite. I'll move into some sensitive material for many of my beautiful conscious community. For there's a pretty interesting movement in my world today of, well, what we might say genderlessness or non-binary or the merging of these two energies that we've called alchemically king and queen, the sacred masculine and divine feminine. I first learned about this at the Beloved Festival in Oregon some years ago while I was walking around encouraging folks to come see my soon-to-be-broadcasted presentation about the Divine Feminine and how we can relate to the archetypal ascent of the global goddess by connecting to the great cycle of Venus and Sun as seen from Earth. And I was surprised to hear from a young being that it's not cool to talk about the feminine or the masculine, dude. I found that incredibly interesting. It really had me sit and contemplate for a while. I mean, it seemed it used to be taboo to speak about sex. And when I say that here, I mean sexuality. But gender themes were quite the norm too much so, and the normal gender theme certainly is something we are here to play with, realign, recreate, rewrite our relationship to our relationship to them in this time. So I came away realizing that in this culture, it's certainly okay to talk about sexuality, but gender somehow has become a no-no. Now, this is a subset of our culture, of course. I mean, we have at the festivals also a lot of work of gender alchemy, women's groups and men's groups, and then the coming together of the two. And what I have witnessed over the last few years, and I'm sure it's been going down longer than that, is a gathering also of a third crew who don't want to identify as male or female. And I've been educated to understand that there is in, 
entire spectrum of gender. So I had been working for some time with this alchemical process of finding the inner marriage or heroes gymos of masculine sacred and feminine divine. But this was a whole another scene altogether. So I realized in the end that there's something about gender fluidity that will be a great teaching for me. And I'm still in the very low courses of this curriculum. And realized too that sex did not just mean coitus, but meant men and women. We know at this time we still need semen and eggs to procreate. Clearly you can hear me taking more pause than usually I do trying to be cautious with my words because I really don't want to offend. And this whole trip into my confusion around genderlessness and the turning away from pronouns such as she and he has mostly been also a intermission disclaimer to say, I honor this. I'm interested in learning more about this. I have the honor and the opportunity to sit with many gender fluid beings and to connect to some of the terminology and some of the reasoning for abandoning old terms and some really fantastic new contemplations of pronouns like they. But a disclaimer because I'm about to speak about Venus and Mars for a while as she and he. This is true to my training. It's something that I work with in my own alchemical process. Hanuman sits here on my tea table and you might know one of the great stories of Hanuman was him ripping his chest open to show in his heart Sita and Ram. I think his celebration of the feminine and masculine energetics. So in my own practice and something that I lead folks through astrologically often, there's this alchemical intent of connecting to the inner feminine and to the inner masculine to understand that I am but the shell of these two who are not two if I can engage with the heroes gymos or sacred marriage in such a way that they can mystically copulate and birth the virgin child which will be the new me complete. An age-old technique of the alchemical mysteries perhaps not expressed in an age-old way. And so it's been quite a challenge for me, and what an honor and a gift and an opportunity to sit here at my astrolo tea table to attempt to provide astrological counsel for non-binary friends who have released themselves from things like he and she. 
because many of my go-to moves in the astrological realms are based upon seeing Venus as a symbol of our divine feminine essence and Mars as our sacred masculine essence. This is true to my initial astrological training in the shamanic astrology mystery school where I was taught that women often have a stronger connection to their Venus, the divine feminine force, even sometimes more than their sun and men to their Mars, and that we tend to project, much according to the transmissions of the great Carl Jung, men are anima, are inner feminine, onto those we are attracted to, be they women or men, non-binary or tree, and that women will tend to project their inner masculine, their animus, onto men or women or non-binary folks that they are attracted to. And that we do this to see this hidden inner other side of self in the mirrors of other beings. Now, when we project totally, I often like to say the broken mirror is the best reflector. Now, this physically is not true in any way. It's hard to see yourself in a broken mirror, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, I find a lot of truth in this. So here's an example. Well, I'll use my own. That's my client um, that I know the most about me. In fact, perhaps the only one that I do. I have um, a Scorpio sun, Cancer Mars, Virgo Venus, Mercury in Libra for me. Mercury's just about to return for me. Venus did last night. Um, and the idea would be that Gemini moon reflecting Scorpio light at the time of my birth, which for me opens windows of contemplating soul and spirit by phase. In ways I touched into that in last week's storytelling hour, though in hidden and kind of subtle ways. But that Mars and Cancer might be this being that I know well for this is the masculine side, and I am one of these people with a penis. Where Virgo Venus would be something that I entirely project. Now, if you are one to play by the astrological rules, it is said that both Mars and Venus are in their fall when in the signs of Cancer and Virgo, respectively. So I have that to deal with if I choose to deal only by the old rule-based astrology. And I don't, but I honor my roots, and I'm very fascinated by this whole scene. It's been a subject of interest at the Organization of Professional Astrology, of which I belong, um, and last night I created a video to show why I believe Venus is said to be in her fall in the sign of Virgo and exalted on the other side in the sign of Pisces 
I see astronomical truths, and Venus taught this to me early this year. I created a very short video about that and posted it last night, which you could find on my YouTube page, Gemini Brett, uh, or just search Gemini Brett, Venus, Virgo, Fall, and you can see some play with charts and planetarium software. Anyway, so back to my story, Cancer Mars. <laughs> Why is this the fall for... Mars, well, Jung said masculinity is to know your sword and to know how to use it. Well, cancer is the sign that's often expressed as the nurturing mother. And I think nurturing father would be a beautiful expression as well. So what would the great red warrior Mars want to do with this sword that might look like the 19-second hug. <laughs> Mars might be very confused in that sign. It said that he knows all about Aries, and traditionally so, also Scorpio, his exaltation in Capricorn and his fall in Cancer. And I have found that part of that very outward energy of Mars in the sign of Cancer has brought tendencies in me to fall in love and to rush in in search, I think, of this family vibe, someone to hold and nurture, you see. I've also wondered if this might be why I like to watch people play football, <laughs> you know? Cancer has a very family or even tribal association. But Mars might want to see people dressed in the same uniform battling one another and call that family. Or it might be an attempt for me to connect to my father, who I've always felt pretty distant from and to, because dad likes football, you see. And I like football less and less, because the whole violence thing is weighing on me more and more. And I started watching myself watch football, which is an incredibly interesting thing. Some years ago, not too long ago, I caught myself yelling, kill him, while watching the Seattle Seahawks play a football game. And I witnessed that in myself and said, yeah, that's gotta change. And it really has. And I'm so much less emotional or angry when I engage with the games on the screens today. So sometimes I'll sit with friends dressed in their jerseys who are screaming and crying and I don't go there so much today. So I'm also engaged in this incredible sociological project of watching myself watch football and watching myself watch others watch football. And this has been a strange aside. There's more important things for us to tune into, are there not? But for me, if I can watch myself watch something, if I can witness myself witnessing something, this is one of the great opportunities to step outside of myself and to see what I'm truly working with. And one of the things, astrologically, 
we could say that I'm working with in my soul song, maybe for this whole life, is Cancer Mars and why is that in fall? And if this has been one of my ingredients of the celestial symphony that causes me to rush in like a fool or fall in love, how can I work with that energetic so I can learn to take some pause and rise in love? And Virgo Venus might be a great gift in this shift. Why? Because Virgo, said to be the sign of the Virgin, is known to take some pause. Now, this is a really important thing. Much of our astrological transmission these days is totally lensed through the strange gender role projections and lockdown of what we might call patriarchy. So many of these so-called feminine archetypes of the earth and water signs have really been taken from their truth. And this to be said too for the air and fire signs. One of my devotions to connect to the signs and the planets experientially and in nature is to help rectify that situation and to remember that my feeling and connections to stars, planets, signs is more important than what I could ever read in a book. Something that many of you know I also teach more importantly than anything else. So virgin, to take that thread a little further, does not mean chaste and celibate. Yeah, I think most of us know this today. But this hasn't been remembered for too long, it would seem. Why, maybe when the Scorpio witches were burned at the stake, the shamans called fake the mysteries of the scorpion chased underground. Many of the priestesses, well, many were also burned too, midwives, herbalists, you name it. But many seem to have been converted into nuns. It's a fun story that I found my way to about the great triple-headed goddess Breed, Bridget, who later became Saint Bridget, that speaks to this. So the true way of the Virgo Mystery School, I like to say, is undependence. That virgin has nothing to do with chastity. In fact, the virgin priestesses, well before in Roman days, they were being buried alive for breaking oaths of celibacy well before that time. The virgin priestesses were actually the tantricas, the dakinis. It said that the warriors would be cleansed of their wounds and demons from the battlefield through the sacred sexual practice conducted by the virgins. How has this archetype been utterly 180'd when it comes to sexuality? And why? An incredibly interesting question. Because these days, if you read about astrology, in the newspapers and whatever, you'll see that Virgo is obsessive, compulsive, cynical, etc. I mean, all of the archetypes get a bad rap in so many of the pop culture transmissions. 
So the true way of the Virgo mysteries is the way of the priestess. You know, keeping the temple clean. And that doesn't mean polishing the bathroom tiles until you can see your reflection in them. In fact, one of the reasons I feel that we've fallen into the potentiality of OCD in the Virgo mysteries is because in our culture we tend not to have connection to her true essence, the priestess, the one devoted to sacred work, to sacred space. An example from my own life recently that I got to witness outside of me, I guess, if there is any outside of us, was to see my youngest niece, a beautiful Leo sun being who has an incredible devotion to the Virgo mysteries, says the song of her soul that I see in her birth chart, her nativity. Some time ago, outside the family home, around this time of year, the pumpkins on opposite sides of the door were of different size. And young Paige freaked out, couldn't deal with the asymmetry. <laughs> and parents were like, oh no, what do we do? Does she have a problem? And they wouldn't go there, but, you know, conversation arose. Does this require psychological counseling? Perhaps medication? My answer was, give the young lady a drawing compass and teach her how to draw the flower of life. Because this is a way where we can apply the meticulous art of the Virgo mysteries through the lens of this great gift known as Venus in such a way that is sacred. It's been an incredible gift to me. It's been one of the great gifts, sacred geometry, as a practice to connect with my Virgo Venus on the inside, part of my recipe for Heros Gaimos, or sacred marriage. Because when I've projected this only outside of myself, there's been this incredible attraction to one who was so devoted to their work. Somebody who really had a thing, you know, and was all about it. And I find that wonderful. And it was not something that was true for me until quite recently when I found the astrological mysteries. And that only happened beginning in October 2012, really. So I'm rather green. And so is Virgo, but that was not necessarily the Virgo that I was pursuing because I really did not have any understanding of ceremony and sacred space in the priestess way. So what would happen is I would fall in love with these incredibly independent, undependent beings who were so devoted to their thing, and I would rush in with the Cancer Mars warrior hug. And for a while it was like, wow, this guy really knows how to love. This is one with a open heart. What a wonderful thing to see in a man. But that didn't last for long because that warrior hug would soon invade the sacred space. And so love began to grow cold and on my side of the scene, a lot of jealousy would come on the watery tides in those times. 
Jealousy, of course, is always an incredible recipe for pain in relationship and a soon end. Not always for bad grammar, but in this case, yes. Anyway. So, part of my hero's gymos has been to learn to stop projecting my Virgo Venus outside of me. And because when I have that mirror, it's always been this broken thing, right? I'm so attracted to this being who's really into their thing. But then I need that thing to be me. And because it's not, shatter. And the answer is to find that Virgo Venus, perhaps feminine divine within me. And so sacred ceremony and sacred geometry and many other practices that I've seen throughout my life have been an attempt, I guess, to do so. So this is a wonderful way to play with Venus and Mars in the chart. Do we want to call them divine, feminine, and sacred masculine? And because that causes rifts um, in the scene of um, some of my communities these days, I've learned to play with that. I've really been interested in asking people, what is the divine feminine? What is the sacred masculine? And it's interesting in our time that when you ask about the divine feminine, you tend to get these incredibly long and beautiful transmissions Whereas if you ask about the sacred masculine, it's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, he like holds space and, and, and like protects, you know. One way I've come to connect to this idea of the feminine and the masculine when working with our neighbors, Venus and Mars, is to see the truth that she, Venus, is at least in an orbital perspective between Earth and the Sun. And therefore, I like to think of this as the inhale. Venus is drawn as the circle of spirit over the cross of matter. Like she's breathing spirit here into matter on the earth, the inhale. Where Mars, who didn't always carry that sword, that strange phallic arrow on the glyph that we use for him today, was once drawn as the polar opposite of Venus, the cross of matter over the circle of spirit. And I find that when we can balance the two, that Mars then is this beautiful exhale from earth out towards interstellar space moving through the belt and Jupiter and Saturn, etc. And so balancing these two principles of Venus and Mars, the inhale and the exhale, is so necessary. So that's how I'm working with them within. How are they working with us without? I mean, this is an incredible time that we're living in to be discussing these dynamics with the Trumpel Stiltskin sitting in the Opal office. The Oval office. Oval. Do you know about that shape and the sacred geometrical symbolism? If you do, you will probably feel the truth that this cat has no business sitting there. Neither have the many who have come before him. And Venus has these cycles, these synodic dances. So last week I spoke about the synodic cycle of moon and sun from new moon to new moon. Every 29 and a half days for Venus, it's every 584 days. About 19 months like clockwork. It's an incredible thing. And much of my work over the last couple of years and my investigations have been devoted to this Venus synodic cycle. There's a whole slew of YouTube videos and interviews you can see about this on my YouTube page. Um, that's called the 13th flower. 
You could also just search 13th flower Gemini Brett or scroll down on the homepage of morethanastrology.com. Some ways to find links to YouTube and SoundCloud for the 13th flower devotion, which in a way fizzled out before I meant for it to, and I will return to it. Last year, Venus was queen once again in a Leo cycle, and this really felt like the return of the queen. And so years before looking ahead to that, I had seen the very strong potential that we would have our first female president in the United States, you know, obviously contemplating this for me on a local dynamic. And then, you know, I don't want to get too politically biased here, but for me personally, Clinton was not a queen that I would choose. And perhaps this was the truth also for Venus. It felt to me that when the Trunkle Stilskin was elected that um, perhaps that was about reminding us how twisted we still are. And to put somebody up there that would help bring this illness to the surface so we could take a look outside of us, inside of us, and start making some very important shifts. Because certainly we are here to bring a balance between these energetics in these days. At least I truly believe this. At least this is truly part of my own principle and curriculum. This late March, Venus began her next 19-month cycle in the sign of Aries, the warrioress. I used to joke and say, if you only do mathematical astrology, which I don't believe in, Venus plus Aries must equal Shira. But then I started digging into Shira this year before I did a webinar for the Cosmic Intelligence Agency about this Venus Aries synodic cycle. And I watched some Shira episodes and I was like, whoa, five pointed star on the sword of protection? And even riding Swifty, the Pegasus unicorn? And Venus Shira with her healing hands, and this has to do with the great turning of the five-pointed Venus star from the Aries mysteries, which we will see in our time into the sign of Pisces, returning to what's said to be her sign of exaltation. And now I know I'm getting more technical than I wish to for this audience. Anyway, I saw that actually there was some beautiful resonance with Shira as a representative of the Venus Aries mysteries. And it certainly seems that we need to come alive in our warrioress at this time to help clean up on aisle self, aisle culture. Oh my goodness, things are out of balance. But the truth is they always have been. And so in this pain that we are experiencing, there is also opportunity that when the illness rises to the surface, now we can see it and purge it, you know, work with that shadow, not avoid it, yeah. What would have gone down if things were reversed? Well, I could try to shift over to that dimension where maybe it were so if things went differently on election day. Not the dimension I chose, and I like to believe that there's a purpose for this in my own growth. So it's very interesting that... <clears throat> Early this year, in January, I'll never forget this day, January 31st, 2017, I went to Joshua Tree to celebrate 
In this great dance of Venus with Sun as seen from Earth and also the Moon, the crowning of the Leo goddess. Now, maybe again too technical, but I personally was born into a Venus-Leo cycle. And in the great story of the descent and ascent of Anana, the times when Moon and Venus can join in the morning sky during her descent and then in the evening sky during her ascent symbolize the time on the morning sky of her release of her sacred adornments and on the evening side of her retrieval of them. And this was the time, January 31st, where at least according to the shamanic astrology mysteries, the great Leo queen was taking back her crown. And I wanted to be somewhere sacred to witness that. And I was gifted by Venus. I woke up that morning in Joshua Tree and I looked to the moon, this beautiful waxing crescent, and there was Venus during the day and all day long. I saw her, my friend Nassim was me, with me, and she saw her too, and all of the people we ran into, and my camera, and I posted about this, and people saw Venus in broad daylight during the day. That night we watched Moon conjoin Venus and Mars alike. Venus and Mars came very close to making a perfect conjunction in the evening skies at the beginning of this year of 2017. Venus came into Pisces, said to be the sign of her exaltation, I believe on January 2nd. Mars was already there. Later, she would chase Mars into the sign of Aries, a sign that he is said to rule. He's like, let's hang out in my place. And she's like, all right. And then she hit the brakes. And so I will project my own story onto this whole scene. <laughs> she said, you are not ready for me. You need to be initiated. Look at what's happening in this world today. Too much warrior flame. So she hit the brakes. She stationed retrograde. She dived under the beams of the sun in the Inanna story. This, I believe, is when she is moving the halupu tree and receiving the sacred me from wisdom, Enki, before she is throned in her home world of Ur as the queen. My genius magical musician friend Maria Stark and I recorded a transmission of the story of Anana in California last year that you can also find on my SoundCloud. Just search Gemini Brett or Starry Telling Podcast on SoundCloud and find The Descent of Anana with Maria Stark. It's one of my favorite things that I've ever co-created. If you want to hear more about that story, which was certainly tuned to the dance of Venus and Sun and Moon as seen from Earth, no doubt about it. In fact, the Sumerians, where that tale comes from, they called Venus Anana. Later, she was known as Ishtar, which is what the Babylonians called Venus. And Mars, in the story, might be Demuzi, her consort. Anyway, at the beginning of this year, she's like, you're not ready. <laughs> and she stationed retrograde. She began a new cycle. He tried to run away from the sun, as he does, and he's not quite fast enough. 
the best candidate in this race from Earth's point of view, but he could not get away, and the sun caught up, and he was burned in the sun's flame. The end of Mars is time as evening's star. Born again quite recently on the morning side, and there was Venus waiting for his return. And now they will engage in a perfect conjunction. They got close early this year, but she hit the brakes. And now on October 5th, they will align. And so I really, really highly recommend you wake up before sunrise and see this go down. Now, on Lucid Vibe, this episode won't be posted until October 9th, so it's after the exact conjunction, but you can see them still very close to one another in the morning sky. Wake up before sunrise and inhale that beautiful light of this sacred marriage. I'll be heading east of the mountains to catch them with my own eyeballs this week. An incredibly strong conjunction, not only conjunct by longitude, the degree of the zodiac, which is the 20th degree of Virgo, but by latitude as well. Venus will almost occult or eclipse Mars. Not exactly, but they were close like these twins. But you will see in that twinship that she is this bright and beaming white light. And he at this time of his cycle is a rather dim red fella. So anyway, a sacred marriage and in the sign of Virgo, in the sign of the Virgin which does not mean chastity, but it does mean unmarried, one who is so strong onto themselves that they do not need the strength of a partner or spouse at their side. And I think this might bring us into the potential beauty of Heros Gaimo's sacred marriage and even of the non-binary. For me, the former, because that's my study, not the latter, because I'm so junior varsity in that investigation, and perhaps I will grow. We shall see. So in Virgo, truly a sign of sacred marriage. This is also happening on the day of the full moon. The full moon at this time in the sign of Aries, reflecting Libra light. Aries, independence. Virgo, Undependence, Libra, partnership, othership. I spoke about this last week, and I will often. All of the 12 or 6 polarity pairs, Libra and Aries, are not necessarily just opposite beings. They're two sides of this great spectrum. Put Libra and Aries together, it spells libraries, and this is the book of relationship Libra, othership, Aries, selfness, not selfish. Othership, selfness, meeting in the middle at the heart, right relationship, sacred relationship. If you speak astrology, here's a thing as well. Moon at this time of Venus and Mars's conjunction on October 5th in the 20th degree of Virgo will be in the 12th degree of Aries. In fact, Venus and Mars, I think it's about 19 degrees and 30-something minutes Virgo, and Moon at 11 degrees and change Aries, they are in almost exact antitia to one another. An incredible happening that is another 
symbol from great mystery of the beauty of this great celestial symphony and cosmic art science called astrology. Also, moon at this time of the Aries full moon will be right around the exact degree where Venus stationed retrograde early this year when she hit the brakes and said, dude, you're not ready yet. And so we have Aries independence reflecting Libra partnership, selfness, othership, this great reflection that can help us meet in the middle, but we're told, I believe, by Venus and Mars. Not until the sacred marriage goes down. And we're born into a world that is promoting this idea of soulmate, twin flame, my better half, the one that completes me. We must complete ourselves, then we can welcome our compliment. Or perhaps compliments, if that's how you prefer to roll. There's another incredible symbol going down at this time in the Celestial Symphony, which is that Mercury will conjoin Sun on the exterior side, as far from Earth as possible, on October 8th. In Libra. Amazement. So, virginity, independence, selfness, independence but all reflecting the Libra light of partnership, balanced, relating. But I will also say that this Aries full moon, as I did last week, though the Aries full moon is reflecting Libra light, the seed was planted on September 19th in the sign of Virgo. When at that time, all of the personal planets, Moon, Sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars alike, cohabited this great sign of Virgo. We're currently in a Virgo-Mercury cycle. Virgo, one of the signs that Hermes is said to rule, is nocturnal, feminine, it is said in the tradition's sign. And yet the exterior conjunction, Kazemi in the heart of it, will be in the sign of Libra. Virgo, Venus, Libra, Mercury, and generosity, but not quite mutual reception, something perhaps to speak about another time, also part of my story. But I think this has been enough for now. The general moral of my story is I'm clearly confused. And so the astrological mysteries are helping me find me in helping me help you find you, perhaps. Thank you so much for tuning into the storytelling hour here on Lucid Vibe. Here's to the Heros Gaimos, the sacred marriage, independence, undependence, completing ourselves so we can truly welcome a compliment. Here's to releasing ourselves from the projections and tendencies that cause this great imbalance in our time so that we can birth a world of beauty. This is your friendly astrolanaut, Gemini Brett, signing off. Love and planets, y'all.